what uh, what were you expecting, if anything, and what expectations uh, have been met, not met, or what have you found about your classmates? Yeah, it's. I mean, it's been really great. Um, uh, kind of everything I expected, and then maybe maybe more. It's such an impressive, diverse group of people. Everyone has a dream, and some people's dreams take them to extraordinary places. David Simon is one of those people. Tune in every quarter to learn how a 50-something lawyer from the U.S. navigates the ancient world of Oxford College in pursuit of an MBA. Tom Fox back in with David Simon for another episode of A Yank at Oxford. So, David, first of all, uh, welcome back. Thank you. It's good to be back with you, Tom. So, David, in um, our first episode, we talked about uh, your the start of your journey, but uh, that journey has accelerated a fair amount. So we wanted to get together to, to kind of bring us um, up to speed and get some of your thoughts and what your experiences have been um, in your really, I guess, uh, now first couple of months uh, at uh, Oxford in the MBA program. So could we maybe start out by, if I could ask you uh, about your classmates what uh, what were you expecting, if anything, and what expectations uh, have been met, not met, or what have you found about your classmates? Yeah, it's. I mean, it's been really great. Um, uh, kind of everything I expected, and then maybe maybe more. It's such an impressive, diverse group of people. Um, we've got, you know, sort of everything in our cohort from you know pretty traditional business backgrounds, you know, finance people, bankers engineers, salespeople to, you know, there's a bunch of other lawyers. We've got some doctors. We've got um, a, a, a race car uh, aerodynamic uh, engineer. We've got a guy who produces uh, West End uh, theater. I mean, it's really, it's really super interesting and, and really impressive, really impressive people. Um, uh, which is what I expected. I mean, really, that's part of the reason I chose chose this program is because I, I I fully expected Oxford to draw you know a, a great great group. I guess one of the things that's been a little bit of a surprise, maybe not a surprise. I just hadn't really thought about it. Is just how um, the the environment is so so great, right? For, as a as an adult going back to school with a bunch of other adults, you know, who are eager to learn and open and you know, willing to share um, their experiences and their perspectives in a really honest way that, that it's just been uh, really, really awesome. Um, I, I've, I've enjoyed it um, even more than I expected. David, perhaps we should have uh, started with actually bringing our audience up to date at the uh, end of the first podcast. You were on the cusp of beginning your program. What have you done over the past months or past couple of months, both in person and virtually to fulfill your degree requirement. Yeah, so so um, we've had two sessions, two one-week sessions. The first one was virtual. It was back in September, um, and we did the whole thing. It was about a week um, uh, uh, of pretty close to full-time, you know, classwork and, and and preparation during that week. And then we had a week in person uh, in Oxford in uh, the first week of November. Uh, so that was great. It was my first chance to actually be on campus. It was actually the first time I've ever set foot in Oxford, which, um, Tom, you've told me some stories and, and uh, uh, you, you weren't kidding about what a great place it is. So that was, 
that was really terrific. We're actually going back again in a couple of weeks. Um, first week of December, we have another in-person module. We're hoping to go, you know, COVID permitting, we're hoping to be going uh, in-person from now on. Um, I do, I do uh, one other thing in terms of actually meeting requirements of the degree, we've actually had our first assessment um, and I'm actually working on it right now is up at three o'clock in the morning with um, Excel formulas running through my head, which I can tell you has never happened to me before in my life. Um, my analytics class, which is pretty much statistics, um, we've just gotten through and we're, we're having our very first test. So I've got, a, I've got a project I've got to turn in after Thanksgiving. Um, you can imagine it has not been an easy task for me. I, I, uh, my last math class was in, I think, 1986. So um, it's been challenging, but it's been fun. And I think, I, I think I'm getting through my assignment. I, I, I'm hoping I've done enough to pass. That's, uh, that's kind of where I'm, where I'm setting the bar for myself. So, David, we laughed, although perhaps not too much, in our first episode about your upcoming adventures in mathematics, statistics, and analytics. But I was wondering if I could ask, uh, in addition to maybe having to re-energize a muscle you hadn't worked in a long time, what was your experience with your classmates helping you get through what I'm going to say was probably the most difficult class for you? Yeah, it, 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 I think I hope it, I hope it's going to be the most difficult class. It was our first one, um, and and it really was hard for me. Um, you know, basic stuff. And I, you know, I think I, I speak for a lot of lawyers. We don't we don't really know Excel. We don't live and breathe in Excel the way a lot of business people do. Um, you know, for me, I, you know, I was like the guy who had my assistant. I'd get an Excel spreadsheet and I'd say, print this on like a really big piece of paper so I can I can read this small, tiny print. And uh, for anybody who knows anything about Excel, it sort of misses the point um, entirely. So it's been hard. Um, I've actually really liked it because um, it's been just a totally different, using a totally different part of my brain. Um, and the teacher is just the maybe the best teacher I've ever had. I mean, he's just, he's just outstanding. Um, but to, to your point, um, I've really had to rely on my classmates, uh, most almost all of whom are are more adept at the at the quant stuff than I am, and uh, they've been super generous and super helpful and just you know basic stuff like how to do things in Excel that um, everybody apparently in the world besides me knows how to do. Um, I've been really grateful for the for the support. I hope I I hope I can reciprocate in something. You know maybe. We'll have a, a business law course or something where um, I'll have something to offer. David, I know one of the goals you had in this entire experience was really to help broaden and improve your decision making. I was wondering, um, maybe go through some of the challenges you thought we faced as lawyers, and I include us both in that, obviously. But what has been some eye-opening or uh, interesting areas for you to see how lawyers and compliance professionals can improve decision-making? Yeah. So, so it's, it's one of the areas where we've spent, you know, a good amount of time in um, one of my courses is a leadership fundamentals course. And we spent um, sort of a unit on decision-making and I thought it was really interesting. I thought there were some, um, some kind of, for me, at least revelations about sort of maybe some of the blind spots for lawyers in, in, in decision-making. Um, you know, I, I think about sort of the classic kind of lawyer decision-making paradigm, right? Where, you know, there's this, you know, 
usually partner or the lead lawyer who's, you know, making these decisions based on, you know, intuition and judgment and experience. And it's, you know, it's this sort of true professional, you know, style of, 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 um, of making decisions. And, you know, that's sort of what, what I, we think we get paid to do. It makes sort of what a great lawyer is and does. You know, one of the things I've learned in, in my coursework is that, you know, the research is, is pretty clear that that kind of decision making um, tends, to, tends to produce bad decisions at a kind of a higher percentage of the time. Um, you know, they, they talk about system one decision making, which is sort of that intuitive experience, judgment based decision and system two decision making, which is more methodical and process oriented. And, you know, it, 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 you know, learning this stuff sort of had me reflect on kind of how we tip, how I typically make decisions in my practice and how my, my partners and, and friends make this decisions. And, and I think we really do land in that system one box most of the time. Um, you know, a lot of that, a lot of the reason that that goes wrong is um, cognitive bias, right? I mean, I think people, a lot of people have, have sort of heard about cognitive bias, but, you know, there are, there are a number of those kinds of biases that I think particularly affect lawyer decision-making, things like confirmation bias, um, you know, anchoring bias, where you get tied to an early fact that, that, you know, that sort of skews how you think about subsequent facts, salience bias, where you're, you're influenced by a prior case too much, you know, all, all that sort of, that, that sort of stuff can produce just not, not as good a decisions as, as, um, as, you know, I think our clients deserve. And so one of the things we learned about is, you know, the importance of, you know, building systems in place to slow down the process, right? So you, you, you use things like checklists, right, to make sure every factor is being considered before you make a, a judgment call or, you know, build some process just to kind of force you to, to reckon with some of those um, cognitive biases that might, you know, might affect how you, how you think, think about something. I mean, like, I don't know. I, I mean, you do this too, Tom. I mean, think about like a, like a self-disclosure question, right? You, you do an investigation, you got you're advising a client on, on whether to self-disclose. I mean, there's all kinds of potential biases there that might produce a bad decision, right? There's like a self-interest, you know, potential, like, oh, if I self-disclose, maybe I'm going to get, you know, more billings and this is going to benefit me personally. There's like anchoring, right? You might find an early fact, you see something in a document that colors the way you see the whole, you know, the whole matter. Um, you know, maybe you're heavily influenced by the last case, you know, it's like, oh, this is just like this last one I did, um, you know, except to the extent that it's not. And, 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 and sort of, Building, I guess the, the ultimate point is, you know, building um, uh, some some structure around how we make decisions. I think lead would lead to better better um, decision making. One more thing I want to say about this, and then maybe we can talk about teams. But I, you know, one of the things that struck me in this decision making study is the importance of dissent, um, and that's also something we're not great at. Um, as lawyers is promoting dissent among among our teams and and really figuring out a way to get honest um, objective opinions from other people on the team. So you know one of the things I'm going to try to incorporate more is really you know encouraging team members to 
to to to to to voice dissent, maybe even to create it intentionally. Um, one of the techniques, sort of in the same in the same vein, is um, they call it a pre-mortem, right? So you you start with a you start with the assessment that everything went wrong that could possibly go wrong. It's the worst of worst case, and then you sort of think backwards, like, well, okay, what led to that worst of worst case, and 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 it helps you, you know identify landmines and, 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 and potential missteps. So I, I, I found that whole discussion and all the readings we did in this really fascinating and, and really relevant to what we do as lawyers. So now let's maybe move to uh, a broader team approach or your thoughts on how this type of decision-making process might be utilized uh, in a team. You, you really articulated very well, but I think it's a standard law firm approach with a senior partner, perhaps a couple of senior partners, if it's a very serious matter, junior partners, perhaps senior associates, junior associates, uh, and uh, research clerks or others um, that may uh, be a part of a team. But how do you get that team not really moving uh, on the same page or towards the same goal? Because I think we, we do that, but how do you incorporate these various uh, strategies around decision-making in the team decision-making approach? Yeah, it, it's another really, to me anyway, a really fascinating and, and really relevant topic for, for lawyers and, and law firms. And we spent a bunch of time studying this as well. So, you know, I, I think, you know, I think most people would agree, including even most lawyers that, you know, a, a really high performing team produces the best results. Um, I mean, it, it, you just, you just, you, you can obviously do more um, as a team than you can individually. I mean, I think you're absolutely right the way you describe the typical sort of law firm model, right? We, we sort of just default to this, this team based on role, based on title, based on, you know, where you fit into the firm hierarchy without really thinking about, um, you know, what the team is trying to accomplish and what you need on the team to accomplish that goal. I was thinking about this, you know, like one of the analogies that that came to mind, this may not work um, exactly, but, you know, I think about like professional tennis versus professional football, right? Like professional tennis, like Roger Federer has a team, but the whole team is just there to, to, to support Roger Federer, right? And Roger Federer is the, is the, is the, is the ultimate, you know, um, performer. He's got a physio, he's got a coach, he's got all that stuff. You know, I compare that, and that I think that tends to be the way the law firms work, right? It's the it's the senior partner who's the, you know, the Roger Federer role, and then there's a team to support her or him in in that whole process, as opposed to sort of football, where you know you've got at least 22, maybe a little bit more if you add special teams and different roles, um, all of which are critically important to achieving the objective. So I, I think I think you know one of the things we're, we sort of you know, focused on one of the things I, I'm going to focus on is trying to change the law firm model, at least on my matters, from 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 less of the Roger Federer and more of the more of the Green Bay Packers approach. Um, and, and you know, I guess part part of the way I think about that, I guess first off, is formation of the team. Right? We we were talking about this before, right? It's just the way it kind of works now is role based. Um, one of the things we learned is that um, there's some some good research on this that you know really high performing teams there are very specific kind of functional roles that are important to high performance. So it's stuff like you know um, you know the creative 
plant person who's comes up with the what if ideas. You need a person who's, you know, an organizer and will will set a process and and make sure that that the process stays on track. You need a person who's sort of the finisher who's going to, you know, make, you know, bring the thing in under the deadline and get make sure people are getting things done. You might have an expert who has subject matter expertise. So there's I mean, the, 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 the literature talks about nine different roles um, that high-performing teams have. But, and, and you obviously don't need all of those in every matter, and it's going to vary depending on what you're trying to accomplish. But I think it's really important to think about at the front end what you're trying to accomplish and what you need and who can serve those roles um, and, and to communicate clearly at the front end who's doing what and, and maybe even have like a team charter or a you know, uh, uh, at least an understanding of, you know, you're the glue guy in this team. Your job is to make sure everybody's getting along. Um, and, and, and you're the, you know, you're the finisher. You are responsible for making sure this brief gets, you know, completed and filed on the day it's due. Um, so I, I thought that was pretty interesting and something I think we could, we could learn from as lawyers and we could do better. Another thing on team composition that I thought was interesting is the importance of having like a client expert on the team. So somebody who really understands the client and their business and their objectives and can voice that as the team's working towards um, towards its goals. Uh, so I, I thought that was interesting and important. And I guess then the last couple points on this, sorry to ramble on, I, I get kind of excited about this stuff because it's, um, it's all sort of new and, and interesting to me. But um, you know, it's not just about the formation of the team, but also, you know, how the team performs. So, you know, again, setting expectations at the front end, con communicating them clearly, I think is really important. Checking in, you know, throughout, making sure that the team is, you know, accomplishing what it's set out to accomplish. Also really important milestones, you know, making sure you're on track, those kinds of things. And then, you know, the third thing is, um, you know, maybe bringing in an outside perspective to the team to challenge some of the team's assumptions, maybe looping back to the, you know, the decision-making point and the cognitive bias issue, right? Having someone who's not absorbed in the team dynamics who can pop in at, at certain points and say, here's how you're doing and, and, and maybe point out where you're off track in a way a team, you know, a day-to-day -day team member um, can't do it. So I, that stuff to me was all really fascinating. And I think has real potential application in, in the way we lawyers sort of do our work. David, uh, a little bit earlier, you mentioned about the sort of professional and work diversity of your classmates. But I was wondering if uh, I also understand you have geographic diversity from their backgrounds and, and really from the kind of non-UK, non-Canadian, non-American perspective, have you had discussions around uh, corruption, perspectives on corruption? corruption uh, or anti-corruption compliance? Yeah, we, we have actually. It's interesting how often that has come up in our discussions, um, particularly people who are, you know, operating businesses in, in emerging markets. Um, I've been, I was struck by how often I heard comments about, you know, we're, we're, one of our courses is sort of a microeconomics firms and markets course. And we're talking about, you know, market failures and the role of government and, and a topic that just keeps coming up, which sort of surprises me actually, is just how 
corruption in government really impacts business. Um, and it struck me, you know, Tom, with what we do uh, uh, with a lot in, in, in our practice, um, it sort of struck me that, you know, we may be, it, it, it may be a lot more prevalent than we think. And I, it made me wonder whether, you know, some of the compliance stuff we do is less effective than we think, and maybe a little bit more kabuki theater, um, where, you know, we're, we're just not maybe sufficiently cognizant of just how corruption plays a, like a daily life role in some jurisdictions. And, you know, I, I, it, it made me think that some of the compliance stuff we do, we might need to be peeling away more layers of the onion than we have been in terms of really what's going on in, in certain places. And, you know, whether there's a, a level of just kind of background noise um, in the environment that, that gets missed um, uh, by, you know, particularly by U.S. and Western compliance officers who are only dropping in occasionally. Before we move to some fun stuff I wanted to ask you about, I want to circle back on the decision-making because you said several things several times about uh, dissent, other voices, different different opinions, and why it's so important in individual decision-making to have that in the team decision-making approach. But could I maybe extrapolate, extrapolate that out to the conversation around whistleblowers? Hmm. Because the uh, certainly the government, uh, the SEC, has led uh, a charge to garner more whistleblowing for enforcement actions. But I think many people now see a whistleblowing system not simply as a legal requirement under Sarbanes-Oxley, but as a way to engage employees and to bring information that's closer to the ground up to uh, decision makers. Um, it, and it seemed to me listening to you that that your experience individually in the team group really could have a broader discussion as well within uh, speak up, raise your hand, reporting, whatever you might choose to call it um, in corporations, and that that might be a, a real uh, strategic shift in thinking. Have you thought about any of those concepts? You know, I, I hadn't thought about it, but it's a really interesting point, I think. Um, you know, one of the things we talked about uh, quite a bit is something called psychological safe space, which sounds awfully kind of millennial, but, but it, it's not, it's not designed to be, you know, sort of maybe what it first sounds like. I mean, the idea is, is, is creating an environment in a team or in a company or whatever, whatever situation you're in where people really do feel safe voicing their, their views, especially dissenting views or unpopular views like a whistleblower's view um, and, and we talked a little bit about some techniques uh, to promote that. I think one of the big things is, is having a leader of that group who listens, um, uh, having a leader of that group who can admit her own mistakes or his own mistakes openly, um, creating an environment where blame is not, you know, is not sort of part of the game. It's, it's always about constantly improving. One of the examples that they used in one of the readings was uh, Pixar, the, um, the, the animated film um, uh, uh, company. And, and the, the, I can't remember the guy's name, but the, the 
the person who was sort of the driver of, of Pixar said, we start every, we start every work on every film saying, this is a bad movie. How can we make it better? Um, and, and I think that's a really, um, an interesting way to approach things, a good way to approach things. I think it, I think it, it helps make for better decision-making, but it also helps, um, I think it helps promote that culture you're talking about, that speak up culture where you can, you can create, intentionally create an environment where people can raise their hand, where they can flag issues. Um, and it's not just saying, you know, we have a speak up culture, but it's demonstrating it through the way you lead the, lead the organization. Uh, you've now traveled to Oxford. Uh, I've attended Oxford as well. And as great as the academic experience is, that's only part of it. Uh, so uh, maybe we could start off with, could you talk to us a little bit about the college system, how it's different than the college system here in the United States and your personal experience at uh, Keble College? Yeah, for sure. So, um, and a lot of people may know this. I know you know this, Tom. I didn't before I before I started down this path, but you know, um, Oxford is set up where it's almost like a matrix, right? So you are in your school and you, you were in the side business school that's sort of owns our curriculum, but you're also a member of a college, which is really important when you're an undergrad, because a lot of the instruction and what you do comes out of the, comes out of the college. Um, but, you know, it's really one of the great things about Oxford is they, they even, you know, we like part-time, you know, business, you know, old guys, we get, we get, you know, admitted, we matriculate at a college, we're a member of the college um, and part of it. So, um, you know, and it it actually um, just give you an example of of sort of the what I think is kind of the brilliance of the model. Um, we had a breakfast um, uh, at Keeble, and it's spectac. I mean, it's spectacular. We're in this dining hall that you know looks like um, looks like a scene out of Harry Potter, and you know, chatting with you know one of the, a couple of the, the fellows and and a couple of professors, and. Um, one of the, the like student leaders of the college joined us for breakfast. And I, you know, I sat with him. He was a PhD engineering student, right? So completely different world from mine. And uh, we had a great conversation about, you know, he's interested in renewable energy. We're talking about, you know, climate change um, within the context of business. He's looking at, you know, climate change issues from an engineering, like a fuel engineering perspective. Um, I didn't really understand a good chunk of what he was talking about, but, but, you know, we were able to sit together in that environment and share ideas and cross pollinate. Um, and it was really interesting and really, you know, I, I think stimulated both of us to think differently about things. So that's kind of the whole point of the college system. And it, and it, and it really works great. Um, it, um, I, I actually, I don't know if we talked about this time before, but I did stay in the dorm which was an interesting experience for me. Um, it's a graduate student dorm, but it was a it was still a dorm, um, which um, uh, which was different. Um, perfectly perfectly nice, but um, but but pretty dorm like. Some of my classmates actually were in colleges where they had to share share bathrooms. I did not have to do that, um, but um, but it was fun. And there's a big group of us at Keeble and we're, we're, we're enjoying, enjoying the, the resources there and enjoying being able to, to, to be part of that as well. Uh, it's really fun. One thing I did not get to do, which I still rue is I was not able to row on the Thames. 
Uh, and I understand you got to do that. Tell us about that. I did yeah, it was great. It was it was really um, it was like one of those bucket list things, right? To to have that experience. Um, and it was actually kind of cool because we did it. Our, our one of our leadership professors actually organized the event, and so it was um, it was designed in part as a, a team dynamic um, uh, sort of lesson, as well as being really cool and really fun to be out. Um, on the Thames in a, in a, in a large, um, uh, boat. And I know it's not called the boat, whatever, whatever the appropriate term is, but, um, it was great. And we, you know, you know, part of the lesson was, you know, he started by saying, you know, when's the last time you tried something you just, you, you didn't know if you could do that you weren't good at, that you weren't accomplished at and, you know, stretching yourself, um, to which I answered, you know, my analytics class um, an hour ago <laughs> would be an example of that. But um, the other point that he made that I, that sort of resonated with me was, you know, rowing. We were in these eight-person, you know, boats, um, and he said, you know, rowing isn't about how good you are at rowing; it's how um, consistently you're rowing with the other people on your team. Um, so you can be really good and have a great, you know, stroke and have it perfect, but if you're not in sync with everybody else in the boat, it's going to be a disaster. And I thought that was pretty interesting and pretty cool. Um, uh, and it, and it was a, a ton of fun. We actually are forming a, a little club of, um, of, you know, putative rowers that uh, we're going to try to try to get out a few, a few more times during the course of our program. So it was cool. It was really cool. Um, there's some magical experiences at Oxford. Some of those involve uh, geographic locations. Some of those involve the people. But it seems to me you were able to wed the people and the, the location with a truly magical experience. Could you tell us about your dinner? Yeah, we had a we had a a, a formal dinner at Balliol College, which is one of the oldest colleges at Oxford. I I think I, I can't remember the age of the dining hall, but um, really really old. <laughs> let's say. And it was, um, it's spectacular. I mean, it's, it's sort of everything you would picture in terms of an Oxford college. And we had a formal dinner and it was beautiful and inspiring. And I, I think we're going to be doing this on every in-person cohort. We're going to have, we're trying to organize a dinner at a different college, um, which is, which is really pretty special. Um, and, uh, and, and a, just an amazing environment to be in really, really great. So, David, uh, we're nearing the end of this podcast, but I was wondering if you might give our listeners uh, a little teaser of what you're going to be doing in experience, maybe over the next quarter before we get back together for another pod. Yeah, so we're, I mean, we're, we've got, we're in a pretty intensive time right now. So um, we have a session in December, a session in January, a session in February, and a session in March. Um, so this um, next session, we're finishing Leadership Fundamentals. And we're finishing firms and markets are our two courses. Um, and I'm not, I should know this, but I don't remember what we've got coming up on deck, but we usually have two modules going, um, going at once. So um, yeah, sometime in the first quarter, I think it'd be a great time to report back. And uh, I can, I can tell you if I've passed my analytics assessment um, or if, you know, if, if you don't hear another podcast, it's probably because I've been 
I've been sent uh, sent home sent home for failing. <laughs> well, somehow I don't think that's going to happen, David. But I look forward to uh, hearing more about your journey as as we follow you as a Yank in Oxford. Thanks, Tom. I enjoyed enjoyed talking to you again. This is Tom Fox again. I hope you've enjoyed this episode of A Yank at Oxford. We've got a couple of new podcast series running on the Compliance Podcast Network I wanted to talk to you about. The first one is Once Upon a Trading Law, The History of Insider Trading, where Professor Karen Woody interviews students in her insider trading class to talk about the history of this law. If you're interested in this topic, it's a great one and a really unique perspective that Karen and her students bring. Also, Gwen Hassan has started a new podcast, Hidden Traffic, which talks about human trafficking and modern slavery uh, and Gwen's journey and advocate uh, in the fight against both of these international scourges. And finally, while not a new podcast series, Mikhail Ryder Gordon is back with season two in the Wirecard Saga. Mikhail's podcast has become one of the go-to resources literally across the globe for the Wirecard Saga. So I hope you will check out these podcasts all on the Compliance Podcast Network. Finally, if you've ever wanted to start a podcast or have an idea for a podcast, please give me a call. I'd love to visit with you and see if I can get you on the Compliance Podcast Network. A Yank in Oxford is a production of the Compliance Podcast Network.